What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Pat, it's 2020. Yeah. It's a new year. Yeah. Do you reckon if we call Jason Furman, his attitude might have improved? Only one way to find out. Should we call him? Yeah. Okay, let's do that. Yeah. Hello, Buffhead. Hey, Cockhead, what are you doing? <laughs> you woke me up, you bastard. Dude, we're recording another ad and we thought we'd call you. Just to- <laughs> yeah, you fucking woke me up. You're lucky, all right? Answer this. <laughs> oh, is that one of the reasons you don't like people calling you because you work nights? Yeah, that's like I, I, I try to stay awake until fucking midday, but no, people ring me at like three in the afternoon. Oh. Like as if they have lives. Hey, Jace, got any cool stuff for sale? Through EinswickDogQuip.com? Yeah, if uh, you get on the website and if you're a balanced trainer, certified balanced trainer, that's NDTF or Bart Bell and Gold School, right. um, you can get up to $40 off HS products. I see. Is that because you're an ethical good guy and you're trying to outprice people just buying them without knowing what they're doing with them? Pretty much. There are other reasons, but mostly it's that. I'm a, I am an arsehole as well. But <laughs> so if people wanted all this kind of dog training equipment... Uh, equipment. Yeah, equipment. Is that a chipmunk with that has equipment on? Yeah. Okay. Uh, is, is that my new name, Pat? Yeah, you're equipment. the you're the equipment. <laughs> the equipment. Yeah. Where do they go to check out that? Best bet is einzvex.com. www.einzwek.com. All right. Happy New Year, Buffhead. Glenn, are you eating dog food? I'm not eating dog food. Okay. But people thought I was last time. This is why we're redoing this ad because last time we were doing it, we had people ringing up saying, I'm very confused. It sounds like you're eating dog food. What dog food did people think you were eating? They thought I was eating Bright Spites. Why would people think you were eating it? Well, because on our ad last time, I made a little rustle and you said, Glenn, what are you doing? (laughs) And I said, I'm enjoying some Bright Spites. Isn't it that... The Bright Spites are so healthy and nutritious for a dog that they're amazing to use in training because dogs love the flavor of them. They're actually very good for the dog. Mm. And they're so delicious that you thought maybe you'd have a little nibble? Well, you could because it's been so well made. As you said, as you pointed out, Kylie Bright uses all the best products that you could possibly think of in her dog treats Mm -hmm. that you could possibly eat them. But they're not recommended for human consumption, but they are great for your dog. Okay. Where would I get these? Dog Squad Canine Services.com.au. Did you say Dog Squad Canine Services.com.au? I did, sir. Would I spell that canine or spell it out? Canine as in C A N I N E, not K9. Okay. So spell it out Dog Squad Canine Services.com.au. Get yourself some Bright's Bites, use them to train your dog. Don't have a nibble yourself unless you really want to. Exactly. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And joining us on Skype all the way from the USA right now in Palm Springs, I think, at a police canine conference is Mr. Cameron Ford. 
How you guys doing? It's awesome to be on this show with you guys. I know we all share the same podcast passion. <laughs> That's right. So before we even start, let's kick it off and say you've got your own podcast, Canine Talking Sense, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, it's a, it's a podcast dedicated to pretty much anything detection-wise in the detection dog market. So whether it be bomb, drug, from cell phone, bed bug, arson, you name it, including tracking, all of that I try to cover on the podcast through various experts I bring in, whether it be psychologists, chemists, other forms of scientists, or just people with lots of good experience that can bring information to the show and to the guests. Nice. Hey, so we met what was that? That's a month ago or something now. Yeah, almost bang mm-hmm. on a month in Las Vegas because you are at the moment training out of Silver State Canine in, in Las Vegas, right? That is correct. Yeah, I'm at Silver State Canine and it's what I kind of call an academy. It's a schoolhouse where we basically put people through either trainer schools, handler schools. We host seminars there as well, such as what you came down for. And, you know, it's an education facility that we, we do some dog sales. I joke around. I tell people, you know, what we do is I'm your custom shop. You know, we don't have like a kennel full of dogs. I basically either raise the dog with me for a half a year or so, or I hand pick a dog out and then it will live with me for maybe a little less time if it's an older dog. So that way it, when it gets done being trained, it goes to the handler and they go through a school and then they certify and hit the streets. Nice. So if you don't mind, like, let me just explain to our audience. So me and you met the day before the seminar I was doing there. And Mm -hmm. it was one of those stepbrothers moments when we started talking about the way we train dogs. (laughs) And it was, did we just become best friends as we were bouncing ideas off each other and agreeing with everything? And because a lot of the stuff that uh, we were talking about is not, it's not new science, but it is newer to the working dog world, like like a lot of the things that have worked in the past still work, but some of the newer techniques that you're really interested in are working better. And we were agreeing sure. on all of that and bouncing ideas off each other. So can we wind a little bit back and- uh, Origin story. Yeah, give yeah, us the origin, origin story. Yeah. Okay. So as a little kid, I grew up in Orlando, Florida, and ironically, my neighbor was the gentleman who started- canine or police canine in Florida, and this would be in the early 70s. So he graduated and trained with a gentleman named Pat Cahill. Pat Cahill is kind of like the forefather for uh, police canine. Okay. So he had learned under Pat Cahill, comes to Florida, started a company called Canine Incorporated. This is also back when they would put uh, guard dogs on, let's say, car dealership parking lots Mm -hmm. or any number of businesses and so forth. So anyway, that's my neighbor. So as a kid, I'm deathly afraid of his dogs because they all act like they wanted to kill me through a small four-foot chain-link fence, mind you, between (laughs) me and the dogs. And But at the same time, I was enamored by it. And then fast forward a little bit of time ahead, I was was like his demo kid. He would take me and put me in the back in those days, a station wagon with all his tough dogs and say, see, this kid can hang out with the dogs. And the dogs don't eat the kids, so the dogs are good. <laughs> Things like that. What so, kind of dogs did he have I, back then? Was it? Uh, oh my gosh! Rotties so, and Dobes. Rottweilers, then? yeah, Rottweilers, Dobermans, German Shepherds were the big ones, and I, I could still to this day remember the dogs' names. There was uh, two Rottweilers. One's Cato and Ada, and then a, a Doberman named Rowdy. He was pretty crazy, mm-hmm. and then two German Shepherds. One was my favorite, named Basso. But his police dog was named Kino, which I ended up naming my last police dog after that dog. Yeah, right. Uh, cool. So, yeah. So those were that's what kind of 
I guess, planted the seed as a kid. And then can I, he, can I ask you a question? Up, yeah. Knowing what you know now and, you know, back then reflecting this guy, you know, he was your next door neighbor and was amazing and the dogs were amazing. And, and knowing what you know now, when you reflect back and think about it objectively, how well trained do you think those dogs were? How stable do you think they were? And, and <laughs> compare them to the modern police dog now. I would say they were very well trained, but it was through more compulsive methods. Mm-hmm. So these dogs also, I would say, are very genetically different than the dogs that we have today. Yeah. You got to think back of more of like the old school East German style bloodlines of mm-hmm. Roddies and Dobermans and Shepherds. So pretty hard dogs, but with that said, and I know the methodology back in those days in the seventies was, okay, I got a strong dog. I also have a strong hammer too. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. whatever, whatever method they used kept the dogs in line. And it was probably more out of fear based, but those dogs were so strong. You didn't see outwardly fear from the dogs at all. Mm-hmm. You just saw the fact that they are under control, but you were probably teetering on an edge as well that at any time you know, you might set off the fuse and the dog was going to do what's going to do. And you just had to deal with the aftermath. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, but I would say, so as far as like reliability of training, I would say they had to put more work in to get the reliability as compared to what we do today. Today, we can create a lot better reliability without some of the techniques that existed back in those days that today we can actually go much further, much faster, much more efficiently than we used to. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm always interested in, you know, when people reflect on those past ones, especially with off breeds, like, you know, it was probably pre Malinois mm-hmm. being very popular at all oh, yeah. in the U S and reflecting on the Rottweilers and the Dobermans back when, yeah, they really were an almost a totally different animal to what you'd find today. Mm. Oh yeah. Without a doubt. I mean, I just, the Rottweilers themselves back in those days were just beasts of dogs. Mm-hmm. And, and even the shepherds too. I just remember his dog, Kino specifically his police dog. It was just that big pumpkin headed style of German shepherd that was just all power, no break, you know? Awesome. Um, yeah, just genetically really, really good dogs before they became so popular and the breed modified and became back then there was no show line. It yeah, was, yeah. you know, they were just working dogs. Yeah. That's it. So yeah, it changed, you know, obviously with popularity. Yeah, it's an interesting thing you talk about that, Cameron. I was around in that vintage in Australia, and I mean, we were never blessed to have the vast selection that most European countries and even to the degree North America had. However, what we did have was, uh, especially in Rottweilers, I'll use Rottweilers, the typecast, because that was the dog that I sort of cut my teeth on, but they were a completely different animal than what they are today. And you're 100% right. I mean, Pat and I are very critical of what's happened in the breed. I mean, other people will listen to this and say, yeah, but Glenn, it's for the better because, you know, we've progressed into a world where what's the need for that type of dog? However, if you're talking about the selection criteria for a working dog, that's vanished in those breeds now because they don't exist in there. You're, you're really limited to Malamars now. No, true. And it's a very accurate statement. There's good and bad no matter what, and there's definitely been some trade-offs in either direction. Mm. Um, those of us obviously on the working side, you know, we kind of long for some of those stronger bred dogs because, you know, especially depending on the type of work, you know, with, with Pat and I's background with the special forces kind of thing, we wanted dogs that have that, just that genetic toughness because we can't predict every situation a dog may come into. Mm. So, but we want them to have that, 
that metal in them to get through whatever diversity that they're facing. And, you know, depending on how breeding occurs, sometimes we have lost some of that through the watering down or not necessarily watering down, but the changes, changes of what yeah. is, is looked for, you know, yeah. or what is desired from a breeder or a customer, you know, depending on the dog they want. So, mm. um, overall the ripple effect, I mean, I was lucky when I was living in Germany at the time in 99, it was the year of the split between the German Polsai and the German SV. Mm. They used to always do the Bundesliga together every year. And in 99, that was the last year that it was going to be a joint, you know, event. So in there, in part of the reason there's other reasons, but one of the main reasons was the Polizei had a harder time supporting the program that no longer had a stronger emphasis on the working aspect and had a stronger emphasis on the show aspect. Mm -hmm. So the Polizei started drifting towards the DMC or the Deutsche Ballonwall Club and, you know, getting more dogs from them, supporting more of their events and things like that. So, yeah, I was lucky that year. I was in 99. I went to the Bundesliga and kind of got to see that transformation that was occurring, that branching off of, hey, the police, the country's national police saying, hey, we have a hard time supporting this because we need to support dogs that are matching what our needs are, not yep. Mm. A, a different uh, you know program that was going on yeah that's it hey sorry mate i derailed you a bit but i thought it was an interesting thing so so you're you're, yeah. you're living next to this guy working uh these these hard ass old dogs and you're the demo kid going around <laughs> with him yeah yeah so he ends up getting divorced from his wife i didn't see him for probably seven or eight years i begin taking i was starting college and some of my classes were in the evening. So I'm sitting there, you know, shooting the shit with some of the guys in my class and they're cops. And, you know, as we came, kind of became friends, they were saying, Hey, you got to come out and do a ride along sometime. I think, you, you know, just talking to you, you have some of the qualities we look for in law enforcement. So I decided to go down to the sheriff's office. I fill out a form to go ride. And as I drive away, I see the canine guys doing some training. So I pull off the side of the road and I'm kind of watching them. And of course, as a cop, when you see somebody pull off the side of the road, looking at you, you're going to go walk, walk over <laughs> and see what's up. So the uh, officer walks over to me. Hey, can I help you? Said, sorry, I'm just watching. Uh, my old neighbor used to do this. Well, who's he? Uh, his name is Bob Gailey. Oh, Bob. Well, he's over there. And I was like, damn, tell him Cameron's over here. Hey, Bob, some kid named Cameron's over here says he knows you. And I hear him yell, Cameron. What is he doing? And then from that night forward, I was training with him. I became a kennel hand, you know, so he, he basically did like the karate kid thing to me, like Mr. Miyagi. I was <laughs> in, except in the, instead kennels. of painting the walls, it was picking up the shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I'm, I'm cleaning kennels. I'm bathing dogs. I'm taking dogs for walks. And of course I'm sitting there going, all I want to do is be in his police canine classes. And finally, after probably about two or three months of just basically doing all of that stuff, helping him out, he's like, hey, if you want to stay after hours and, and watch the police canine class, it's on your time, but you're free to hang out. So I did. I sat there for an entire year just sitting and watching them do their training every night. And finally, when they hit the second year, uh, one of the guys who was a, kind of like Bob's apprentice, he was a police officer in that area, really good guy. Uh, tossed the sleeve down at my feet one night and goes, you're done watching put the sleeve on and just kind of do what we've been doing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I threw a, a bite sleeve on and started imitating the guys who I had watched being a, a decoy. And at 18 or yeah, 
19 years old, I'm out there catching dogs, doing bite work, nice. laying tracks, hiding in buildings. And, and it really paid dividends. You know, at the time, you know, I was having a blast. I thought it was awesome to just be able to do that. But later on, you know, the following year when they gave me a dog to kind of handle, to, it was a dog that was going to be assigned to somebody, but that guy couldn't come to class. So I got to work the dog in the class. It enlightened me as a handler because as the decoy, I always got to hear the dogs rapid sniffing as they got close. Mm -hmm. I got to see the dog pick me up before the handler would pick them up. I would see all of these things. And then even when the dogs would bite me, I would, I would feel that bite, how that bites being, you know, pressure is changing based on conditions, what I'm doing, what the handler is doing. And it helped me when it was my turn to be the handler. One, when I would hear that breathing change, or I'd see that body language change, I was more attuned, even though I didn't know it. Now I can look back now and go, wow, I'm glad he did all that to me because mm -hmm. when there was a dog in my hands, I could understand it better. And then as the decoy, when I could see the dog in its bite doing A, B, or C, whatever it was, I kind of knew what I would do as a decoy to help the dog. So I would either talk to the decoy or as the handler, I would do things to kind of help the dog. And it was just natural. It was inadvertent because of all that time watching really helped me understand some steps that he didn't have to be there to say, do all these things. So I was able to basically adjust as I needed to to do that. Mm -hmm. So uh, without, like I said, constant instruction, you know, as we all know as trainers, if you got to constantly sit there and tell somebody, yeah. hey, do this, hey, do that, you lose some valuable moments in training time. So, and the timing's his never little right. method. The timing's never yeah. right, especially with a decoy. Like if you then have to tell them, hey, do this now, the, the moment of when they should have done that, it w was, was two seconds ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, that was one of the bleed over effects that helped. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was, I was glad that, you know, back then, like I said, you, you're being the workhorse, you're doing all that heavy lifting as far as decoying. I loved it, but there was major benefits for following that path yeah. versus just giving a leash and going. So then after college, you end up joining the air force, right? Correct. Yeah. So of course I'm in those classes and I wanted to be a cop really bad. And at this point now I'm 21, I think. And the guys are like, yeah, you're a little young to go try your hands at being a cop. You should do the military thing. And you know, you know, I was going through life at that point going, you know, not knowing what I was going to do. So I was kind of joking around like a rudderless ship. I was, mm -hmm. had no path. So family members and stuff kept encouraging the military aspects. So long story short, I ended up in the air force, which ends up being the hub for all the military working dog programs in the military. So luckily enough through, I got picked to go through the military working dog school back in those days, we called it pipeline. So you went from basic training to law enforcement training and then into canine school. So got lucky, did that. And then of course, out of all the places I get picked to be stationed at was Germany. Perfect. So yeah, I w the funny part was I was a little upset. I call up Bob complaining that I'm being sent to Germany. <laughs> and he basically told me to shut up and remember <laughs> the fact that where did all our dogs come from? Yep. Where did most of the education come from? So sure enough, I shut my mouth and realized it was a good thing that I was being stationed in Germany. I fully embraced it after that and, and got to spend four years in Germany. And I really did my best to, I actually went to every country I could and learn their programs. So I went to Holland and learned KNPV. I went to Belgium and learned NVBK. I went to France and learned French ring and then picked up Mondial ring in different areas as well. And it just helped me moving forward. I knew Schutzen from before the United States, so I got more in, 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 uh, entrenched in that in Germany, of course. But 
I wanted to learn potentially, was there a program that had the best police dogs or best potential police dogs? Mm -hmm. And as I went through, every program has its qualities. You know, there's good things for certain programs. And then there are certain things that may not translate well for a police dog. You know, when I, interesting thing was one of the first things I did when I saw the NVBK program in Belgium, I'm like, wow, this would be a really good for police dogs because the amount of environmental stress that they put on those dogs with distractors and things like that and engagement, I thought would be good. As I learned, there's so much control involved in that, that a lot of time the dogs have a difficult time knowing when to react because it's constantly a test, yep. you know, to them, depending on the environmental where KNPV, even though it was more like, you know, the schedule of events, you know, this is going to happen. It's, it's, it's regimented. And that dog obviously can pick that up, but what they looked for in the dogs did match better for what police dogs are required to do. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of fell in love with that program and spent some time there. And, uh, but it was val- valuable. I mean, I, even to this day, I haven't you know done any sports stuff in, in any of those programs in a long time, but it gives me a foundation where they tell me where the dog comes from and what, what country it comes from. I have at least an idea what that dog's background is. Yeah. So I'm better prepared for training with it. That's a really, that's a really interesting one, right? Like I've done a a little bit of work with police in the States that will tell me, oh, my dog has titles. And I, I say, well, in what? Mm -hmm. Because that, that, that Mm -hmm. really means a lot of different things. Like having titles, sure, having an IPO title or IGP, whatever they say now, compared to a KMPB title, that's a really different thing. Mm -hmm. And a Mondio title compared to a French ring title, that's a really different thing. The pressure is different. The stick, the stick work is different, all these different things. And then one thing that I think is very interesting to me as well is even just the bloodlines of the dogs in that their physical performance, like ne- never mind the training and who raised it, but you know, mm-hmm. like my dog is from a KMPV background. And yep. so he's got three minutes of extreme power. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then after oh, yeah. that, not so much endurance after that, right? Because that's yeah, not, that's fatigue. just how it works in KMPV. They do like yeah. exercise, then you do your exercise, then you do your, and then on to the next uh-huh. part, you know, compared to Frenching or, or upper level Mondio sort of things where you might, or, or even MBBK yeah. where you might be on the field for 40 minutes, right? Where the dog's got Absolutely. to perform for a long time. And even just knowing oh, the sure. background, even if it's, even if it's, well, the dog was born in this country and he's not trained in that program it means nothing well it probably does mean a lot like maybe the way that he's been selected for the way that he bites just the way his body moves that sort of thing it, it, it's all relevant it, I'm, I'm actually really so jealous of genetics yeah exactly right you no know, it's a pastoral mm-hmm. effect from generation to generation so it will have a flow-on effect but yeah, I'm really jealous of you yeah. spending four years in Germany or in Europe just traveling around on, on the government's dime oh, playing dogs man it, it, and then the craziest part, so I, I, it was my second year in Germany. I move off base and I move into a house we call on the economy. And I'm in a neighborhood and I kept noticing certain nights of the week there'd be barking going on in this big, huge cornfield behind the house I lived in. So finally, curiosity kills the cat, lack of a better term. I decide to walk through the cornfield and it's a Schutzen club that's off in the distance. Nice. So I go there, make friends with everybody. One of the members happens to be a German Pulitzer canine handler. Uh, we're still friends to this day, Roland Herp, if you're listening, you know, it's a shout out to him, but Roland was super nice with me. We became really good friends, started doing, uh, joint training between the Pulitzer and the base police. And that kind of really enhanced those of us on the military side of things that there was other ways of doing things in the German system. Some stuff might work great for our dogs and other stuff. It's not because we have a different mission. 
But after all that was done, I was my last year in the military, last few months, actually. I basically kind of got an invite to do training with him at the school in Eckenbach. And I wanted to initially go with my military dog, but that made no sense because it's a military dog trained for me. And if I'm moving on, no one's going to carry on what I learned from the German police. Yeah. Luckily enough, I had my own Malinois at home. Nice. So I uh, got approval by the uh, commanding uh, officer that I had and went through the uh, German police dog school with my own German or my own Malinois. And it was awesome. Just the, the luck of being able to spend all that time with those guys uh, training with them. I got a, what they call a DPO2 with my Malinois at that time, which is their police dog titles. And I think still I might only be a handful of Americans that have gone through that school, you know, from start to finish. Mm -hmm. So back in those days too, this, so let me date it, this was be in 1999. So it was still a very novel thing what the Germans were doing as far as police work wise to, you know, the States in this case very different types of criminal activity in the sense of, you know, the adversary, you mm -hmm. know, the criminal in Germany is different than the criminal in the United States. You know, obviously the guns and, and violent weapons and things like that were slightly different, obviously. Mm -hmm. But the way th at that time, the other unique thing that happened recently when I was over there was there was a particular case where a person who was, I may have the details kind of wrong, but anyway, an individual robbed or broke into a convenience store or a grocery store or something like this. Uh, Polizei shows up, makes makes an announcement with the dog, lets the dog inside. The guy takes a jacket and wraps it around his arm, takes the bite on the jacket, and I believe stabs or cuts the dog's throat. Wow. So the handler is coming in looking for his dog. As he comes in, the criminal stabs and kills him. An additional German Polizei guy, I believe, ends up killing that guy, either shooting him or doing whatever, but they lost the dog and they lost the handler. And I believe what made it even worse was he had a newborn or a really young child or whatever. So mm -hmm. there was significant change that occurred in that period of time where there was no longer uh, heavy use of a sleeve. This is, this is where you started seeing more and more muzzle work being introduced. Mm -hmm. and again, I don't know if that particular incident was the main cause, but I know it was probably one of many. And that incident rung through the, at least the Pulitzer guys that I knew because training dog training over there is very common so somebody knowing yeah. decoy skills over there is normal so they took advantage of the situation oh i know how this works i'll put wrap something around my arm with the dog bite it and then while the dog's biting that it's not hurting me and then they can cause harm to the dog which they did yeah so that was something so when i went through school the the changes that occurred became again i don't have the numbers right but let's just say there's seven parts of this certification five out of the seven were all in muzzle now versus half and half or whatever it was prior to that. Mm -hmm. So everything became much more oriented to the dog fighting and not being so equipment oriented as they were in the past. Yep. So that was a big change. And then working with one of the German SEK dogs was pretty awesome too. So the watching a dog that has no out, you know, they do not <laughs> let go unless they are basically taken off by the, you know, we call it a break, break stick in English. But basically, uh, I like to refer to it as an out tool. It's mm -hmm. just, you know, it touches the gag reflex and the dog can come off. It's actually a cleaner way in most cases than just choking a dog for, you know, five, 10 seconds in these days with cameras everywhere. Yeah. But um, highly effective. I mean, the dogs go in. They have no release command. The dog is, is a tool. It's used to engage that suspect and keep that suspect engaged until they have control of the situation and can deem it safe. 
So there's a lot of controversy over that. And I think in some circumstances, it's the best way to train. And, you know, there's always a circumstance where you say, well, if he bites the wrong person, I want to be out of yard at distance. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, there's arguments on both sides, mm. but holy shit, those dogs that have like no intention to out ever. Oh and, yeah. Like when you've never taught it and it's never in the dog's mind <laughs> that this could potentially come. And when the brake stick comes out, like, you know, you know, as well as I do or better, but you know, the brake stick can actually make a great grip because the dog's trying to. Oh, yeah. It's kind of reacting to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, because he they know think, it's coming. They great. Yeah. It's a Pavlovian response yeah. to bite harder. Well, and yeah. he knows, like, well, if I completely seal my mouth, if I, yeah. if I, if I get a complete yes. seal over this guy, you won't be able to get that in and yep. there's no outing. Like, you can really get a lot of in with that outing tool. <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. And it was funny because I was showing recently, I, I, I go around occasionally and do what's called tactical integration with canine operations. So I do classes for SWAT teams to show them some of the stuff that I did with the Navy SEAL project or project, but the Navy SEAL program, Mm -hmm. how to apply things. And to be honest, between me and you, we kind of know this. I'm not really training anything. I'm just teaching guys how to use critical thinking with their dog Mm -hmm. and the other team members exposure to with the dog, being around the dog and realizing they are also role players in that whole team concept. The dog is a tool. They understand how to use that tool and be around that dog. And one of the most important things I try to teach is, okay, this is what happened. This is what you need to do if the handler goes down because many of them don't train for that Mm -hmm. and they need to get used to what are their procedures or how they're going to handle things if the handler has been removed from the equation in one way or another. So one of the tools I, you know, I've made sure that other operators had the brake stick or the out tool with them. So that way, they could get the dog off if they needed to. Yeah. And then they have control of the dog. And ironically, in one of the seminars I did, it was like a two weeks later, they deployed a dog up in a ceiling area. Uh, the dog makes contact as the handler's crawling to his dog, the ceiling falls through. Now the dog and the bad guy are on the ground, uh, where the other SWAT team members are at. So because of the training, they quickly got one guy went up, grabbed the dog by the harness, had his out tool with him, was able to out the dog while the handler crawled his way back from the ceiling back down where they were at and they had control of the suspect and they had control of the dog and it was all smooth. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like you, as you know, we you know a lot of times it's not a training technique or it's critical thinking. What do you do under pressure? Yeah. How do you respond to when all of a sudden I throw a monkey wrench into your plan? Yeah. How do you adapt? And I you think know? Th- there's so much value in that in, uh, like a training package that the canine handler delivers to the rest of who will ultimately be his backup mm-hmm. on how to just basics of dealing with the dog. I remember hearing a really sad story many years ago about a guy who was, he was gut shot and was badly, you know, badly injured or wounded. And his dog mm-hmm. basically went into an object guard over him and wouldn't, let, yeah. wouldn't let anybody render first aid. So they just shot the dog mm-hmm. to, in order to get to him, get to him. But you know, yeah. he, there's no doubt he had a sleeve in his car you know, like if mm-hmm. he, if they just kind of discuss that through and war game that a little mm-hmm. bit, that there, there could have been a better way to deal with it. And it's such a, I remember being really upset reading it because that you know everybody just does their best in the moment. But that's such a good dog, a dog that was would, yeah. would be doing that. Yeah. It's such a, I know. I mean, you got to do what you got to do to save the human life. You got to. But sure. um, if there was a, there is a better way. If they just only knew. How devastating for him too. Yeah, recovering from oh, a gut shot and losing a great dog. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, what I was to say is I, it's important, like you just bringing up, I always make sure everybody knows where the handler has their leashes at on their body, mm-hmm. you know, because every handler should have more than one leash. As you you know, again, two is one, one is none when it comes to <laughs> yeah. things, you know, whether your, your stuff you have on you. So every handler has multiple leashes. They have toys on them. 
it's important to know as other operators where these things are at with your canine handler. Mm -hmm. Just like every operator knows what each other's medical pack is at. Yeah, exactly. So if something goes that, they know where to go to get this. So you're right. Situations like that, know where these tools are at and know in that case, maybe a toy might have worked if you, you know, at least got close enough. Maybe he would bite the tug toy and you can kind of drag away. I mean, who knows? Maybe not. Maybe it wouldn't work at all. But at least it was something to try and to, like I said, when the shit hits the fan, how do you respond? Yeah. Can you, do you have the clarity of mind to make a decision and go with it and, and have that plan B, C, D, and E ready to roll when the time comes? So Matt, I really want to get onto you know, the cognition stuff that we spoke about, but so let's finish your story. So you came back to the, the yep. States and spent some time as a policeman. Yeah. Yeah. So I came back to the States, had a business, imported dogs, sold dogs, did that for a while. But then, um, the, basically the Afghan Iraqi wars kicked off. So that kept things kind of going, but then I had my property, which was crazy value. So I sold my land and then I said, okay, I'm gonna be a cop. So worked as a cop in Florida then the contracting world kept calling. So I'm like, okay, I'll be a, a contract instructor. Mm-hmm. I went to Texas. And then while in Texas, I picked up a reserve status and worked a dog for a local agency in the San Antonio area. And this, it was short lived, but I mean, in the sense of, you know, as a reserve, I got to have fun. I got to go out whenever I wanted to. Mm-hmm. I had a really good chain of command that loved dogs. So there was a lot of freedom I had there. But the contracting was my nine to five job, getting handlers trained and ready to go to Iraq and Afghanistan. So I got to, as I learned my years in law enforcement, I loved being a cop, but I'm sorry, I liked being a cop, but I loved working dogs and, you know, being able to focus my attention to only working dogs was the best thing. But like I said, I loved being a cop. I enjoyed my time in Florida, but being a cop in Texas, those that can understand this is totally different than being a cop almost anywhere else in the United States. So there's a, there's a little bit more, uh, support from the community in, in Texas when you're, when you're a cop. It's the old school law, you know, in Texas, you know, the old, like the movies, the guy has a star on his chest and you're a cop. And <laughs> if someone, if someone screwed up, well then they screwed up and you had to deal with it. So, but it was a lot of fun over there, but yeah, my contracting world, uh, was really what I did out in Texas and got, you know, numerous, you know, a few hundred teams spun up, trained and deployed to both countries in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then that kind of bled into being hired by a friend of mine, a guy named Jeff Franklin he owned a company called Cobra Canine, and he brought me on uh, to do the Navy SEAL project uh, that he had or the contract. And I ended up in San Diego in, in 2014 doing uh, the Navy SEAL uh, dogs over there, SEAL teams one, three, five, and seven that are out there. And uh, really, that pushed me to my next level as a trainer because, yeah, as a cop, I care very much about how my dog works and what's expected on let's say detection for fourth amendment search and seizure rights and things like this, but there's nothing like the pressure of making sure the dog that you train protects the lives of those tier one or, you know, tier three in some cases, but those high level soldiers, um, doing their job Mm -hmm. and to make sure that they come home and make sure that their buddies that they're there to protect come home. So I knew I had to step up what I did. I knew I had to put more time in, Um, and I knew I needed to potentially find a more scientific level of training. And I had started some of that in the contracting world in Texas. I I got exposed to a, uh, I dated a girl from SeaWorld and, uh, her working with mammals showed me a few things. One of which was marker based training. Mm -hmm. And so what what year was that? Yeah, go ahead. What year was that when you started? 
2012 is when I started doing some marker stuff. Okay. My first time doing marker training. And when I started, and so funny part was Mike Ellis had just started putting out the videos with Ed Frawley. And, I, and I've known Ed for a lot of years too. Uh, I, I knew Mike when he was the barefoot decoy. He would go out there and catch dogs in Mondeo ring and things like that. No shoes on. Really? You know, long hair. I've never oh, heard yeah. that before, the barefoot no. decoy. Oh, yeah. He'd barefoot, flip-flops. Oh, yeah. It's a typical California hippie. So, <laughs> the barefoot oh, decoy. Yeah. Oh, I can't oh, wait to yeah. say that. Oh, he was, he was known. I think there was even an image somewhere where it's like a footprint and then a dog footprint. And that was like some of Mike Ellis's little things. Oh, How yeah. funny. I've never so, heard that before. Yeah, that's a first. That's yeah, a world and, first. And I, I, I have to bring in one of the stories. So that so kind of my travels when I was in Germany, you'll laugh at this one, Pat. So I go to a seminar put on by Bart Ballon and Dr. Helmut Reiser. Amazing. And I, I can't I'm tell you what I would it, give to be at that fucking seminar. Yep. Let me tell you. Oh, my God. So and this is funny because I knew of Helmut Reiser from the book. And I knew of Bart a little bit because Germaine Powell's the guy who was running NVBK at the time. Bart had competed, you know, numerous times and was doing really well. So I knew Bart as kind of like the e-collar guy. And I knew, and same with Helmet. Helmet was known because he was the first who, when he won the Bundesliga, admitted to using an e-collar. Wow. And that was so controversial. So I had these two guys at some dog club in some part of Germany teaching a seminar, all in German, mind you. So I'm sitting there listening to them talk and I'm picking up bits and pieces because I could, I could communicate good enough. I go through the whole thing. And the funny part was Bart is trying his best with this one dog with a collar and it's not working at all. And this is before Nipopo was really getting going. Mm -hmm. It was still a little more of the compulsive style of it. So he's trying and trying and then helmet comes over and, and puts a sleeve on and, and brings the dog back a little bit. And then helmet goes into conflict on purpose and conflict on accident. Both create learning. One is you do for on purpose to get the dog to learn. And a lot of times, one is you do by accident. And he kind of showed where you tell the dog to sit and stay, and then you kick the sleeve out to the decoy. He goes, so now you've caused conflict. Then you go correct the dog for something that you did without teaching the dog, you know, how to work through that yet. Mm -hmm. So I go through all of that. I watch, I listen to them. And it was a great seminar. I walk over to Helmet and I'm like, speaking the English? And he's like, yes, I speak English just fine. <laughs> turns out to, turns out so he's a dentist my dad trained him on dental implants oh, nice and shit. here i am being trained by him on dog stuff so we had a <laughs> wow. good laugh about about how the circle of life there happened between dentist uh, dentistry and dog training so how yeah funny. so i i see i get to go through one of those that was the first time with bart i got to you know pick his brain and talk to him a little bit and i followed him around a few more seminars from there to what he is to where he's at today. But then the other one was Mike Ellis, you know, going around there. And then Ivan Balabanov. I remember following him around the trial circuit in Europe. I went to the uh, FMBB, if I remember right, the world championships for IPO at that time, mm -hmm. where he ended up winning that year, which I believe was 99 or 2000. And uh, so I've become fast friends with Ivan. Ivan ends up moving to Florida. You know, I hang out with Mike every now and then. It was just dumb luck to be on, you know, a lot of these things that happened to me, was right place, right time. I, nothing special I did other than I would say I put in work. I was willing to go anywhere, any place to learn. Of course. You know? Matt, if you want to talk about the fork in the road, that would be you getting posted to Germany. That's the amazing thing that was outside oh, of your control. But everything after that absolutely. is still doing the work, right? There's probably dozens of yeah. people that got posted to Germany and sat in the barracks and watched movies instead of going out there and getting immersed in the culture and, and learning the dog stuff. Yeah. 
So and that bleeds into that Navy SEAL program. So mm-hmm. as I'm with the SEALs and I want to get better, I'm happen to I'm sitting there watching a show on Nat Geo Wild, and I see this guy Brian Hare doing these cognitive tests, or they're calling them dognition tests, on TV. And I'm watching this, going, "Holy crap! This really applies to detection dogs because a lot of it is about gestural communication. You know, where we stand, how we point, and how much the dog picks up from all of this." So. I see this and I'm like, okay, how do I get a hold of this guy? So thank goodness, you know, this is now 2015. So I just do a quick Google search, find, I hope it was his email, shoot him an email, tell him what I do. And lo and behold, he reached out to me like 48 hours later. Hey, great to meet you, Cameron. I would love to help out. Long story short, I ended up helping him get an $800,000 grant from the Office of Naval Research nice. to uh, help us. So my initial intent was to get better at detection dogs through what he was showing with cognition. What really started off was how do we select better dogs using cognition? Because we at that time probably had, I think it was like a 48% washout rate of dogs from selection to actual deployment. So, And that's with the Navy SEALs you're talking about, right? Correct. Yeah. So, uh, so if you consider top end, you know, spec ops soldiers, there's always a high washout rate, yeah, you know, course, because it's yeah. it's a demanding kind of thing. Well, the dogs is the same way. So to have a 40% washout rate isn't horrible, but the government wants to know, can we do better? Is there something that we can change that will, you know, maybe make this more productive or more efficient? So in comes Dr. Hare. We start applying the cognitive test because as we all know in, in this conversation here, most selection testing is focused on environmental and driver motivation. Yeah. Very rarely are we looking, if at all, at the intelligence aspect. How does the dog problem solve? How quickly can they problem solve? How strong is their memory? We're not looking at those things. So when he introduced us to a basically a simple series of tests that take about a half hour to 45 minutes to do, when we applied those tests, and this is a small number of dogs at first because this is all we had access to, but regardless, our percentages went up to the mid-70s. Wow. So it helped in the sense that what it really did for me was by knowing how that dog thinks, how it uses memory, allowed me to plan training better. So if I had a dog who was strong in memory, I had to take away things it would use in memory to problem solve. So I wanted it to learn. So I would, I would either make everything look exactly the same so there was nothing you could draw from visually and it would finally use its nose, or I'd create a, a series of, let's say, barriers, something for the dog to have to work through in order to get what it wants. And you talk about this a lot with your Nipomo. It's a, mm-hmm. a cognitive skill. So in the same thing, like you talk about, the dog getting through those adversives creates success. Mm-hmm. But I need a dog willing to get through the adversives. And I could see that through those tests. I could see a dog willing to problem solve or use problem-solving abilities its ability to make an inference from something gave me a, you know, a, 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 instead of being in a dark room, I now have a light switch I can turn on and see better yeah. in that space. So I can then, like I said, my training plan becomes efficient. So not only did we increase the dogs that made it through the program, my training time decreased exactly by 30%, wow. which was huge. Mm. So I saved time on training and I increased our proficiency in the dogs that we selected. We weren't washing out as often. I want to just, because, you know, we understand those numbers, but to sort of explain to our audience, to get 
if you've got a litter of 10 dogs and you were previously getting four, like four of the 10 through and now yeah. you're getting seven, the amount of dogs that even get to the, the funnel to even begin the selection, you've, you've cut out yeah. a million dogs to get to those 10, sure. right? Yep. And and these days it's getting harder and harder and harder. And mm. you know, anybody that's had to buy or sell a working dog, the prices are going through the roof because they're just the the, yep. the demand can cannot possibly meet the supply. And so sure. the idea of suddenly getting seven dogs out of a 10 dog litter uh, through yeah. rather than four, that is astronomical like that that absolutely that i hope they gave you a pay rise right because that's perfect no that's a great analogy for it yeah because you know you say in australia dog that's suitable for that purpose you're looking at say you know around forty thousand dollar mark right because of where we are and so oh yeah every year you can get another three or four of them through you're looking at more than a hundred thousand dollars hundred fifty or thousand dollars around it out there to you know, that's money back in your program. And then you say you're reducing mm-hmm. the actual training time so you can get these dogs mm-hmm. trained up and out the door ready to bang it in even quicker. Yep. Like I just need yeah. to, I just want to emphasize because we understand that when you give those numbers and we say, oh yeah, that's fucking, that's <laughs> yeah. amazing. But to no, people that's... who don't know that how hard it is to get a dog through and how hard it is these days to get a dog that fits through that funnel is so fucking difficult. And if you can find oh, yeah. any way that, that means you can get an extra, even if you can squeeze, if you could increase by 10%, that would still be an amazing increase. People will be like, holy sure. shit, what a huge success. Mm. But to go to 70% from 40 is amazing. And to cut your training time, down by 30% is just, uh, it's a big, big deal. And what's, what's even more special about this is, so not only, you know, we were the first to do it in a, a dual purpose type environment with those dogs. Cause some had been done in, in detection only single purpose dogs. Obviously with us, we were multi-purpose canine, which meant we did, you know, apprehensions and searching and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So we were the first to get to that level. And then here's the crazy part, the complete, opposite is the dogs where a lot of the study came from which was canine companions for independence dogs that assisted the handicap so they were doing the exact same tests but what they were looking at was a complete opposite end of the spectrum of what they wanted than what we wanted we wanted highly independent dogs who would basically work despite us and they needed dogs that were highly intuitive and dependent on handler or human interaction and communication so diametrically opposite ends of the spectrum their percentages were nearly the same as ours wow which is it tells you the merit in the testing Mm, and and there's there's plenty of people that will go out there and there's some really and i have a good friend of mine or i say a friend of mine but a friend of mine who's super intelligent uh he's he's in the whole neuroscience so he always kind of pokes fun at this stuff and goes cameron you know cognition stuff's from the 70s and I'm like, yeah, that's from the 70s, but we're just now really using it yeah. in our world. And there is a ton of us in the dog industry who don't know it at all. Yeah. So whether it was developed in the 70s and we're finally using it now, it doesn't devalue what we're doing and the information it's applying. Because whether it's a handicap assistance dog or a tier one special operations canine, applying or learning about how a dog thinks a dog makes an inference or a dog's memory is so important regardless of the training uh, application. Um, so, so can you give us an ahead. example, mate? Like imagine I've got my dog right here in front of me and yep. we're, we're going to do some detection work. What is just an example of one test that you may do? And then what would the outcome of that test determine for that dog? 
So the very first test I typically do is called distracting pointing cue test. And basically there's two buckets on each side of me, a bucket to my left and a bucket to my right. And I take a ball or a food or whatever the dog's motivated by. And I show the dog and say, Hey, look, here's your item. And I place it, let's say under the bucket to my right. I then point to my bucket to the left and I say, okay, does the dog follow where I point or does it go where it knows what it wants? Mm -hmm. So it saw me put, let's say it's ball in this case, put the ball under the bucket to the right. But as the human, I'm pointing to the left and saying, okay, do they go to where I point or do they go to where they know values at? Mm -hmm. So obviously in detection or most things with, you know, an application of a working dog, I want a dog who goes after what a either motivates it or has been associated to motivate it. Mm -hmm. So despite what I think I know, so real world, I may be pointing to something like, Hey, knucklehead check over here. And he's like, Hey, stupid. The odor's over here. Mm -hmm. I want the one that goes, I'm going to the odor despite what you think, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's one test that gives me some insight that this dog, despite what I'm telling it will make the inference of, Hey, the better answer is over here despite what the human thinks. So if this so, were selection, you would then say the dog that went where the ball was and didn't follow your cue, you would say, okay, mm -hmm. he's a good one. We, we prefer him over the other. But if you had the other, then you would say, if it's not selection, this is the dog I have and we're going to train him. Uh, we then say, okay, well, now I know I need to be very careful of my cues and I need to, in my training, be very uh, deliberate in my actions and not accidentally cue the dog into the wrong thing. Absolutely. That, that's a great thing to bring up is, yes, by seeing that, if I can see you right from the get-go, or here's what's so cool about the test. You do six repetitions of this test. So what you might see is the very first two reps, the dog follows where you point, mm -hmm. but it gets, but nothing happens. Then all of a sudden it decides to choose the other side that you didn't point to and it realizes it gets a toy from there. Now do the subsequent repetitions does the dog stick with, once it knows the answer, does it keep following the answer or is it inconsistent and then goes back to you? So if I see the dog that can make the inference and realize I'm not the answer anymore and it stays consistently going to where it knows what it wants is at, then that shows me it makes an inference. It can, it can learn and apply what it learns. The other part is even if I got, like you said, a dog who still follows where I point, but he's highly trainable, you're right. I have to, right from the get-go, make sure I set up training that's effective for the dog to be successful in learning that it can make the right decisions despite what the human's trying to tell it or we think we're trying to tell it. Mm -hmm. That's one phase of those tests. And there's, there's other parts we can go into a little bit here and there, but that's one of the inference tests right there. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's so simple, but so, yeah. so overlooked. <laughs> yeah. So overlooked. When you explain yeah. it like that, you go, oh, yeah, no shit. And if you weren't in yeah. the industry, you'd be like, what? What? You morons haven't been doing this right from the start. <laughs> well, <laughs> exactly. It, it kind of goes against the grain of the old style of education that people have had in scent detection where, you know, human beings insist that they know better. And, uh, <laughs> and I learned this when I was a pup in training where I, I learned the phrase, trust your dog. And if you look at it from the perspective of the dog, a dog looks at, you know, like I'm being forced to search something where I know there's no fucking odor there whatsoever, you know, so being dragged over there and being forced to do it is quite an aversive event for the dog. And you'll get old school trainers who will insist, well, you know, the dog might be motivated by the larger amount of scent and miss the smaller plants that are in the room. So therefore the dog still needs to go through the education process. But I guess in 
what you're saying is that you're looking at the intellect of the dog where the dog won't miss it at all because he'll be motivated to find it no matter where it is or what it's where it's laid. Yeah, it gives me that insight that, like I said, especially if on the first, let's say the first parts that are subjective where I'm looking at motivation and environmental and all those things and I mm. really like the, let's say, a couple dogs. Well, then I go do these cognitive tests I can really split the hairs or separate the dogs further at that point. Cause at one point they're pretty close. I'm competing with, let's just say two dogs. These are my yep. two favorite dogs. Okay. Let's go do the cognitive test. All of a sudden I might see a very strong split. Now I see one who can make inferences very well, problem solve all by itself or one that's constantly looking to me for help. Yep. Mm. And I will then avoid the dog is looking for looking to me for help or looking to me to problem solve because in my world, that's not important. Mm -hmm. You know, in the somebody else's aspect, they'd be like, that's awesome. That's what I need. Okay, great. I'm not, like I said, there is no in cognition, there is no right or wrong. It's just understanding, Preference. yeah, mm. how the dog learns. Yep. So I, I always laugh when people do the test, they're like, oh, my dog's stupid. No, it, your dog is just stronger in making an inference than memory, or your dog's very strong in memory and doesn't make an inference quite as easy, doesn't make it. You know, are all of us Michael Jordan in basketball? Absolutely not. Dude, does that mean we're less of a, a human being in some way or another? No. Mm. It just means some of us should play we, golf. We just we're all different. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we have to do what we're good at. And then, but if you're now able to kind of see in that dog's brain, you have a, a open operations manual in a way. You can then see, okay. I need to do this in training more often than I need to do that. But we would all figure it out over time. That was the biggest thing. And nothing I'm talking about, we didn't, like you said, Pat, we didn't, we figure out, but we would figure out sometimes after wasting a week or two of time yeah. and then go, oh, we should do this now differently. Yeah. Now, because of those tests, it gives us the opportunity to plan more accordingly or to say, like I said, have that flashlight on that dark room that we didn't have before. And no, there's a, there's a path here. We can go this direction or that direction quicker or slower, depending on what the task is. Yeah. Mate, one thing that blew my mind, I don't want to give away all your secrets because I know you make your living teaching this stuff, but one thing that blew <laughs> my mind talking to you was about the difference between a, a left and right side dominant dog and how you might uh, train that <laughs> mm. differently. Yeah, that's what I was interested yeah. in hearing. Well, can you just uh, talk about that a little Absolutely. bit? Absolutely. No, no, no. I'm... When we were talking about that, I don't know if you saw my jaw hit the floor because that is just, oh, yeah. that never fucking occurred to me. And I, I <laughs> teach people that dogs, when they're biting, will have a preference over whether they're a leg dog or an upper body dog. And of course you can train one over the other, but the dog's going to have a preference. And there's so many things that are so similar that I teach, but uh -huh. it never occurred to me that dogs would be left or right handed and mm -hmm. that I should train them accordingly. I'm deliberately being very quiet in this podcast because I'm just sitting here eating my popcorn, soaking this all up. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a fantastic seminar for me so yes please spill no, all the so, beans yeah laterality just means determining what side the dog's brain is preference to so left side or right side just like humans mm -hmm. you know we have a left left lobe and a right lobe in our in our brains and lobe is probably not the right word but anyway the dogs are the same so what's even more unique especially when it comes to detection is the dog's nasal cavity is split left and right. Mm -hmm. So it's not like our, I mean, ours is split too, but it goes back. It's open in the back. Anyway, dogs can independently work their nostrils left and right. So a dog who is to say left dominant will utilize their left side of their nostril more so initially when they enter a space than the other one. 
it's so minute, but it makes a big difference because the dog comes in and quickly dissects that space within a second or less. And, and, and it's also affected by air current, but you will see them come in and tilt their head to that predominant side. So if you're doing a search pattern that kind of is making a lefty or righty, it causes, can the dogs do it? Do they learn it? Absolutely they do. But you're kind of fighting their natural disposition in a sense. Mm-hmm. So kind of like you talked about dogs that bite the arm versus leg. Well, think about the head tilt. So you need to let them, once you know the laterality, left or right, you may have a dog that likes better turning its head to the left and engaging the leg versus a dog that turns its right to engage the leg. Mm-hmm. And that's one way that if you knew the laterality, you'll know how to best present the leg because that'll be more in tune with how that dog's head wants to be in the engagement. And like I said, with detection, uh, how that dog works that space, they're going to lean towards the laterality side. So whatever their dominant right or left is how they're going to do that. So I actually had a, a handler that went through the course. She made, when she saw that her dog was the opposite of what she thought it was, she made her adjustment and saw dividends immediately because she was like, oh my gosh, I've been making my poor dog work the opposite direction its entire life up to this point. And she goes, now I let her do it this way. And she's so much happier. Mm-hmm. And it's just because the dog became more, you know, you let it do what it does naturally, you yeah. know, it, it operated on that side of the brain. So the, the laterality tests are very simple. You know, one of the tests that we do is just, you put something like the size of a small, um, like, like a wooden pallet, or you can make your own box. That's like a few inches off the ground. And you're just looking to see what foot does a dog constantly step up with. So you have one person who's counting, which paws you go across it back and forth numerous times. You're counting which foot does it use to step up with. So that's one. The other one we call tube laterality, which you take like a small tube. And the reason why we use a tube is because you can put like cheese whiz in it or, or peanut butter in it or whatever. But you're looking for when the dog is grabbing a hold of the tube to kind of lick it and lick the stuff off of it, what paws it constantly grabbing it with to hold it or to control it. Mm-hmm. That is what is the side it's going to, it's going to, it's dominant with. So if it's constantly grabbing it with its right paw to initially grab it and start licking it, then you know, okay, that's a right paw. And while it's doing, this is the hard part sometimes with the dogs that we all work is because with the pet dogs, you can grab that tube, no problem and take it out of their paw and throw it on the ground again <laughs> and they can grab it with our working dogs. Yeah. Good luck trying to get it while they're, especially when you put something they really want in the tube to get it from them. So like I was telling Brian back in those days, I'm like, yeah, this test isn't going to work so hot for the dogs I work with. Yeah. What, what other tests can I do where I can evaluate right and left? He's like, oh, do a step. So, so that laterality is important. You know, the better you know what side your is your dog a righty or a lefty, and then adjusting your whatever your training is that expands upon that or that utilizes that in its best way. Mm-hmm. And and so you see, you know, standard teaching usually is you make entry into a room that you're going to search. You've, you're holding the leash in your right hand. You're kind of guiding with your left. And so we all sort of enter the room, turn left, and work the dogs around in that pattern. Mm. And yeah. for some dogs, that might be fantastic. And for other dogs, yep. you're making them basically search on their offside. Like, like, if, I, like yeah. if I handed you a pen and said, no, you have to write with your left hand. Yeah. No, yeah, and that's fascinating. And think about how how effective you are at writing with your left hand. You're not. So, if you're in that that level of operation that you're talking about, and you need that tool to do what it does, it's probably good that you pick a tool that naturally does it that way versus taking that who you're trying to make a, a righty a lefty 
and realize it, it doesn't work too well. Yeah. It's, it's interesting you're talking before about conflict and how conflicting that would be to a dog who's got a natural disposition to turn one way and you're trying to force the other. Yeah. And, and, and you're trying to do it through reinforcement. You're giving things at mm. once, but still you're fighting what it comes to the table with genetically. Yep. You know what its disposition is. Can they do it? Sure, they can do it. But again, everything I'm talking about is becoming better in our efficiency in our training. Well, you're lessening resistance. What can we do? Yeah. Exactly. Mm. I got really excited about this stuff when we were talking, and I definitely I have to find a way to get to a seminar and understand all this better from you because what I'm sort of always trying to explain to people, especially in the working dog world, is that we use the dogs for dog stuff. Right. So Mm -hmm. try and stay Mm -hmm. out of the dog's way because like I sort of talk about with, especially with the special forces guys, I don't really deal with that a lot these days. But when I sort of talk Mm -hmm. to people in that world, I say, you know, you guys are pretty spectacular gunfighters. Like you really Mm -hmm. don't need a dog's help to, to, to finish off the bad guy. Right. Now, in police, you're taking down or whatever, but typically in special forces, your dog's biting someone, you're shooting them as well, right? So, like, yep. that's what you don't need a dog's help for. What you need a dog's help for is things that you can't do, right? And that is using Correct. his dog senses that mm. you don't have. And it yep. just makes me really excited that this idea of letting the dog, understanding his senses better, and then letting him use them to the maximum his his effect and staying the fuck out of his way so that he can Absolutely. do do his cool yeah, guy dog stuff. Yeah, it. Because if, mm. if, if, if I could smell explosives, I wouldn't need to take the dog, right? <laughs> but I can't. Yeah, no. And there's a unique thing happening here in the States now, which is the National Forensic Board has deemed a dog a sensor. So it's the first time it's actually getting its definition of what it really is. It's a sensor. It's a location tool. Mm-hmm. So like any other sensor, whether it be a laser for laser for a speeding, you know, for someone, you know, like cops use for speeding or the intoxilizer to tell if someone's drunk or not, those are sensors that give you information. Those sensors in order to be kept reliable for court must follow things like calibration, testing, and the dog world has been all over the place. They'll go, Oh, I do a certification. We're good. There's been no looking into one. How are you storing the materials that you're testing with mm-hmm. or calibrating with? Mm-hmm. We used to just, you know, you guys just throw in the trunk of their car and off they go. Mm-hmm. And now that we're reaching this level of science that tells us, okay, your dog is a sensor and it needs to meet legal standards. We then need to start with one. How are you storing the material that you're having the dog detect? How are you calibrating this machine? So it's not just certifying or testing. You also need to do runs that tell us, okay, if I place eight items out in like containers, let's just say I have glass jars in a lineup, can the dog effectively tell me which jar has the target odor in it and ignore distracting or other common odors relative to the odor but are not target? Can the dog successfully tell me this is it? That's how you calibrate. Okay, the machine is running good. Okay, now let's test the machine. Human and machine go to work and you put them in various different operational environments, whether it be searching cars or rooms or what have you. Now, can they find what you're looking for in those environments? Now we're actually finally meeting scientific standards. And then that's the sensor. Then they want to know now, how did you basically program or train that sensor? Yeah. Did you use things like cognition? Did you use operant conditioning? Classicating. How did you use these things in your training? So as a handler, you can no longer get away with basically going, well, I don't know. My trainer did it. Mm-hmm. 
you need to start learning some of these things. We're not asking you to be an expert, but you can't get away with, well, just because, or that's the way we've always done it or whatever. All that stuff has changed. The detection world is fast evolving now mm. because of the uptick in science that's uh, entered our world. It's exciting to know, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it, it brings us up to a level we should be at, especially here in the States when we have our constitution, our Fourth Amendment search and seizure rights. Mm. We need to make sure that canine teams and the canine are reliable to meet that standard. And the standard isn't like some crazy difficult thing, but we need to at least be accountable. You know, there's a great show called Live PD that constantly shows some very questionable canine deployments uh, <laughs> where you watch dogs search a car. And I'm still wondering when the dog indicated, but yet the hand was going, yep, yeah, we're good to get in the car. You're like, wait, all the dog did was walk around the car. So there's things like that that we have to be better at. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, so the other thing I wanted to sort of chat with you about is those cognition testing. So many, many years ago when I was at school over there in the States, the school I was at had a dog lab and they were doing some interesting experiments and I kept my mouth shut because who, who am I, right? But I sort of thought as a dog person that they weren't really testing what they thought they were testing. I thought that (laughs) because they were brain scientists and they were interested Mm -hmm. in, you know, understanding cognition at that point. And it's why I've kind of always been interested in it's why I was so excited when we met, but you know, I didn't give them too much feedback because I I didn't want to make an idiot of myself and be wrong, but I just kind of Mm -hmm. felt what they were actually testing was more gameness of the dog and drive. Mm really, because the test was a high drive dog or a dog that was more game and like would just not give up on the idea of finding his reinforcer was really what they yeah. were testing more than intelligent in one of the tests they were doing. So can you explain a little bit, like I thought it was fantastic when you said now you're cued in with these guys, especially the guys at Duke that are mm-hmm. basically you're working with them, right? To, to give yes. them a, a dog handler and a real dog person's perspective on their brain science. Yeah. So you know, one of the things that gets brought to my attention when people do the test, they're like, oh, this is all visual. I'm like, yeah, it has nothing to do with odor because the dog initially assesses things visually like we do. They're also taking in odors, of course, but they still have memories based on visual aspects, visual cues, how something looks, things like that. So we are looking at how they process information and how quick do they make a decision. Mm. So this is why the distance from where the dog is at and where the examiner is at or where these buckets are at is only about three meters, you know? So it's not very far because all you're looking for is how quick are they making a decision left or right, or in some cases left, right, or center, which one do they choose? So it's just how they make a decision, how quick they make a decision. The crazy part is all these tests initially were all done with rescue dogs or pound puppies or things that had no motivation. In fact, the test was set up, if they didn't make a decision in 15 seconds, you had to restart or redo the test. So I laughed at that because (laughs) I was like, our dogs are going to make a decision in probably a second or less. So he goes like, oh, yeah, you know, sometimes we had had many dogs that would just stand there and look at us and not do anything. So they actually cut their teeth learning this on dogs that couldn't really, weren't even anywhere near what we would look for. Mm -hmm. But yet what they were learning was very profound for what, those of us in any type of working do need to know. So it's, it, it's about process of information. How does the dog, and it, that can be later on, whether it be through the nose, through the eyes, through the ears, the environment itself with all three factors going, how does the dog 
process the information and when reintroduced or based on experience, do they go off memory or do they, are they willing to be, we call mentally flexible? So I'll give you a great example of an old mistake that we used to do. You'd see a dog who's crazy for a toy, right? And you would put the toy, let's just say the wooden box that we talked about. So when that dog sees that box, what is your, most of your dogs want to do? They go dive right into that box. Mm -hmm. Okay. So about, let's say a meter to a meter and a half away from that box, I have a different object. Could be a backpack, could be something. And in that backpack is actually the item that they want. How long will that dog keep going for that box, even though there's nothing there before it's willing to try that other object in that space and realize maybe that might have something. Mm -hmm. So that's important. So the dog who I used to be in love with, that'd be like, oh man, see how crazy he is for that item? A lot of times that dog is not mentally flexible to try something different quick enough. Mm -hmm. They may eventually give up, but I want the dog that tries something a couple of times and goes, nope, this isn't working. What else can I try? So that is one simple test to do where you know you you reinforce, reinforce, reinforce at one object or one thing, and then just a small distance away, have a different object in that space that actually contains the item, not the spot they've been reinforced at numerous times, and seeing how long does it take them to make the change, try something different. Mm -hmm. Because that's the real world on a deployment or any kind of, whether you be a cop, whether you be in sport, whether you be in the, in the military application, the dog is going to be in, into a different situation. And can they make that gear shift quickly? Like, okay, this isn't working. This is different. Let me try something, you know, now yeah. that's this or that. It's a funny one so, because that goes against a lot of the things we think, right? Because oh, like, God, yeah. in selection of dogs in the past, I've put say like a, the ball, under a grate where there's no way the dog can yep. get to it. And if all things yep. being equal, the dog that spends the longest amount of time just smashing his face into the grate and barking mm -hmm. at it and going crazy, uh, oh he's yeah. my he's my favorite, right? Because he's yeah, he's less he's so committed to the behavior. But what you're saying is maybe another dog, I mean certainly your example is different because the ball's not not visible, but a dog that goes, Oh, where's an alternative? He's maybe smarter and he's he's a better prospect. Well, I, I do it in the way you do it. So I do like a one second milk crate, right? So it's got it's, so they can see mm -hmm. it. Yeah. So, so I initially do like you do. I want to see how long they stay after it, even if I walk away from it. Do they stay going after it? Okay, mm -hmm. good. I see that they can do that. So now they play this game. So now the milk crate is still there, but then I also have another object in that area where that item might be at. Mm -hmm. So they go to the milk crate and they kind of realize there's nothing there. Are they willing to go someplace else to look for it? Or are mm -hmm. they going to keep going there because they've been playing this game at least once or twice with me in a row and said, oh, it's got to be here because it's been here the entire time. Yeah. So I'm looking for that dog to switch gears mentally. How fast does it happen? Yeah. Because I'm like you. I still want that dog who's you know motivated for that thing. But I need a dog who's also willing to go, you know what? What I'm looking for is not here. Where else might it be? Yeah. And let me try something else quickly. Yeah. So yeah, that's a that's something I look for. Yeah, it turns the sort of test that we're doing into 3D chess, right? Just adds that extra dimension to it where we go, oh, like I can test for the 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 basics. It turns out that we're only testing for the basics, mm -hmm. is what I was trying to say. True. There's so much more there. Which is we why we run into problems later on in training. Yeah. Because we we didn't invest in enough true evaluation in that beginning. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating so, shit, man. I is. really enjoy talking to you about it. Hey, we should look at wrapping up. We're, we're in over an hour. We've stolen okay. a lot of your time. I know you're, you're busy. Oh out no, there. I love it. This is awesome. <laughs> so this, tell this, us, I, I can do this a full time. Tell us again, how people can learn more of this stuff from you and where can they so, do that? Okay. So 
I'll kind of break it into the easiest way. So Silver State K9 is like our academy. You come to Las Vegas, you it's go a to physical our school, place, right? Like it's a real you place. Got it. Yeah, go it's to our it. physical place. So we do classes and seminars and things like that. There are probably our number one thing is the trainers class or our handlers classes. Those are probably our popular ones. And then there's also advanced handler classes and things like that. Now Ford K9 is my company that runs the podcast that has turned into webinars and seminars. Mm -hmm. So because like you guys, there's a lot of interest in either the individuals I'm interviewing or the topics of discussion uh, such as this. So people want to learn more. So I've come up with the way to travel to where, wherever you are at in the world, I'll come to you and do basically like three-day block seminars. So whether it be detection through cognition as a three-day block or those that want to learn the cognition aspect for dogs so they can learn how to select dogs better or just know their dog better. I can't tell you how many nose work people, uh, how many uh, groups I've gone to, they, they've had their dogs for years. And now they do the cognitive testing and they're like, holy cow, you know, mm-hmm. now I know that much more about my dog. And my joke is a lot of times you don't know the person you're sleeping in your bed with. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's some of these things help you with that. The, and then the webinar format is a lot of what, you know, is the same kind of thing. So I call it like step one, they get to watch these things. Mm-hmm. And then me going to you for a seminar, we actually get to do them. So it's, I try to do it where, like I said, there's an academy, there's online, and then there's go to you. And those three things work together. So whether it be Silver State K9 or Ford K9, either way, it'll get you that information. I share both websites, SilverStateK9.com and FordK9.com. Both share that information. Again, Ford is Ford K9 is more about the seminar, the testing, the things like that with the cognitive stuff. And then Silver State K9, you get to come to Silver State and do it there. So I have all the stuff at my place and you get to spend three days immersed there uh, doing it. But for those that want to buy the materials, I, I actually have the full list of things you need to have for the cognitive test. You can get it all together. I'll fly there and we'll spend three days having fun testing however many dogs we can get through. The And I'll add the newer part to all this that's just coming out now is puppy cognition. Mm-hmm. So we've been doing it with adult dogs for a little bit of time now for a number of years but there hadn't been dedicated studies to puppies and how predictive it was at, let's say weeks old to a year old. So if we saw some cognitive tests on a puppy, was it predictive that this dog would be a certain way, one way or the other towards working? And we have the data now it's coming out in the next few months. I'm going to start sharing the puppy cognition tests as well, because as you, you brought up earlier, Getting dogs is very difficult or becoming more Mm -hmm. difficult now in Europe, right? So I'll use the States for an example. We have good genetics in the States. We have dogs with some amazing genetics in the States. We don't breed enough of them to really start fulfilling our needs. We also have individuals in the United States with great knowledge. What we lack is a process that raises that puppy to that working age to start its career. We need to develop our process of rearing those dogs to get them ready for working. And cognition is a major component of that. So it's not just the training. So if I can, you know, our goal is to, with cognition, show to a litter, like you said earlier, a litter of puppies. If we can start identifying one stronger in one way or another way, the breeder now knows which ones to put attention on in certain training aspects mm-hmm. and have them ready one way or another, depending on what the discipline is. And then once it's in that category, 
it then gets trained, exposed, and what have you, and then molds into your percentage of washout drops dramatically. And then we now have a process in place that gets us ready to fulfill some of our needs that we need to have because there just isn't enough dogs being produced in Europe to meet the world's demands. Yep. So whether it be Australia or the United States, we need to create a process of that rearing and cognition is a major component in that. Yeah, mate, I love it. And, and I think there's so many layers to that in the selection of dogs. And, you know, even say with your, when you're working with the Navy SEALs, something that sort of always amuses me is the, the guys want dogs at say 12, 15, 18 months old. Mm-hmm. And that's when he's going to do his testing to see whether he can go into be a, a military working dog in one of the most yep. elite units on the planet. But mm-hmm. at, you know, at 18 months old, that dog, or especially at 12 months old, he's a teenager in his brain. And when oh, you say yeah. to these guys yep. like who have been through say buds in, in, in Navy yep. SEALs and our selection, SAS and commando here selection, you say, what is the likelihood of you passing the, mm-hmm. that selection course when you're 15 <laughs> years old, right? Like, oh, yeah. And, of course, there's dogs that do. The example there is, well, this dog got through. And you say, yeah, but – and there's 15-year-olds that could do butts. They, they exist. Mm-hmm. They're unicorns. Mm-hmm. But there's plenty, there's plenty yeah. that would be broken at 15, and we'd never find out that at 25 he was going to be perfect for it, you mm-hmm. know? And that's exactly what happens with, I think, so many dogs. And, and I'm really passionate about, first of all, minimizing the wastage in selection in, in working dogs so that there's less dogs mm-hmm. just being, you know, bred and being turned into dogs that live in someone's yard and turn food into shit. But also, yeah. like, it's just getting harder and harder and harder worldwide. The problem exists everywhere that it's harder to find the right dogs. And so we need as many tools as we can to help dogs become the right dogs. I'm really passionate about that. And that's why I'm so excited about a lot of this stuff that you do, that it opens up a whole new avenue of dogs that would have been just said in the past, oh, he doesn't have the drive for it. Or maybe he does have the drive, but we just don't understand it. So think about it in this way. And you know, as well as I do, psychologists have identified qualities that are common in individuals in, let's say, that tier one operation environment, right? Mm -hmm. Highly competitive. They don't take no for an answer. Their ability to want to quit is very low. You can trace all that back even to a young child. You'll see those sparks of that personality exist. So what we're doing with the cognitive testing now with puppies is saying, okay, can we see some of these traits, let's say the ability to make an inference very easily right now. And then, so the way it kind of goes is we do the test at say three months old, six months old, nine months old. And what it has told us is even though the scores might deviate a little bit, the category the dog is strong is stays about the same. Mm -hmm. There's not a ton of difference. However, if I can see at a really young age, maybe a dog struggled with say about 50% of the time with making an inference. Well, guess what I can do as that raising or that breeder or raiser of the puppy is create learning objectives through brain games or fun games for the dog to learn how to make an inference Mm -hmm. and become stronger at it. So now I can take that dog who, if I didn't do these things, became non-viable for what I want, turn it into viable Yeah. because I paid attention to it, was able to identify it at that perfect age where it's important to expose them to things where they can learn. Yeah. Tailor the program to him rather than just forcing him into the cookie cutter. You got it. Exactly right. Big time. That's probably the number one thing I would tell everybody. Learn that dog in front of you. That's what you got to train. Yeah. You know, you may have a parameter of a system, but you have to be mentally or you have to be flexible yourself 
both mentally and physically what you're doing to that dog. Yeah. And if you're, if you're inflexible or you only going to stick to your one training system, you're going to have mixed bag of results. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's interesting, you know, because it's culturally quite different here in Australia that uh, there are not too many civilian vendors of detection dogs. It's not like it is in the States where there's so many people, like most agencies yeah. want to train their dog because to get access to live and I know we've had the conversation about live versus pseudo, but but sure, yeah, um, yeah. to train a dog and sell it here as a as a detection dog to the forces is very very difficult. Mm-hmm. And so, and you know how it is in police and military to get a tailored solution to individuals is difficult. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, right? Because oh, the, yeah. if you want to see a cookie cutter like that, is the military right? And if you don't fit oh, the system, sure. you're out. And so yeah. I, I'm excited, you know, as a civilian now that there, there really is, it's civilian industry that has the flexibility to look at every dog mm-hmm. as an individual and go, you know, this is what we'll do for you. And this training session, dog one comes out of the kennel and we train in a particular way. And then dog, t- dog two comes out. And even though we're at the same stage in training, we're doing a completely different thing tailored mm-hmm. to his needs to progress him forward rather than, you know, day one is this, day two is this, and every dog goes through yeah. it and we just lose dogs along the way. Mm. So I think that there's a real opportunity in civilian industry all around the world to start producing dogs. We'll, we'll start training dogs in a way that police and military really would find more difficult, not impossible, but it's more difficult. It doesn't fit their mold so easily. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the first slides to do my PowerPoint is you have to have the ability to cast away you know, past assumptions and be open-minded to trying things differently. Mm-hmm. And if you're willing to try things differently, you're going to grow, you're going to evolve. Yeah. And if you are stuck in a tradition or a belief system, you're going to be limited, you know? So everything I try to share and explain requires having an open mind. And then, like you said, some of it's going to turn stuff on its head to you and other stuff you're going to be like, yeah, I knew that already. Mm-hmm. And that's perfect. That's exactly what I want because it, it validates your experience, which is important. But then sometimes it calls you to question maybe some of the beliefs that you had and it's time to evolve and try something different. And all of your good trainers out there will do that. They'll make adjustments and go, you know what? Okay, I, I, I'll listen to it the first time. Second time, I'll, I'll dabble with it a little bit more. And then the third time they're kind of around it, they're actually trying to do it, which yeah. is good. So that's an important part. You guys just pinched on it a little bit before about pseudo versus real. Is this a conversation we can have or for another time? <laughs> is this a can of worms uh, I'm going to open up? It or? is a can of worms. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll, 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 you're right. We, and we can definitely do a show on this. Okay. Um, ironically, I was just sitting in Ken Furton's class, Dr. Mm-hmm. Furton class. He is from Atlantic uh, University. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of like the big chemist that's been out there at a long time for detection dogs. Okay, terrific. So, Can we have you back at another stage and let's open oh, up the absolutely. dialogue on I'll this because this is something I'm really enthusiastic to know about. Yeah, yeah no, and it, and it is, it, he did a great slide and I, and I have my notes from it. Yep. And I actually have interviewed on my podcast two of his undergrads wow. who, who are now professors themselves at universities and either work at the Office of Naval Research right. or they work at a forensic lab at a university. So, Great information. All of them have confirmed the same thing that he talked about, which I am more than happy to share with you guys whenever you guys want to do well, it. Well, I'd love to have you back for a round two and open up that can of worms. Absolutely. No, mm. it's great. I love to do that one because talk about changing some belief systems. Yeah. It that's definitely just, is in that conversation. That's I was laughing because there's, there's some butthurt people that will be around over Oh. It. But, you know, you can't, it, like, they'll change their mind when they're presented with good evidence. That's Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. For All sure. right. Well, let's take this as an opportunity to wrap it up and we'll, we'll have to have you back again. 
Fascinating. Uh, Love this episode. Thank you, Cameron. Thanks so much for making no, the time for us, you. mate. I know you're really, really busy and, and you're actually in the middle of a conference at the moment and you took a took a chunk out of your day to talk to us. So I really, really appreciate that, mm. mate. Thanks a lot. No, I, I appreciate it. And I hope somehow, some way I get to Australia, you know, in the near future, whether it be with you guys, I think I don't know if Pat or someone reached out to you recently asking you about it, but I would love to share the cognition stuff with everybody in your country as well as I've been doing elsewhere. Yeah, for sure. We definitely have to find a way to do that. It's yep. just getting some schedules to align, but. Oh yeah. I know you're, you're busy. Thanks mate. Uh, yeah. Thanks Cameron. That was, My pleasure. that was absolutely fantastic, mate. Really riveting stuff. All right. Well, thank you guys very much. Uh, well, last time, what's your name of your podcast and how pe- can people get in contact with you? Yes. If they want to? So canines talking sense is the podcast. That's K number nine. Uh, so canines talking sense that's on all platforms uh, of podcasts and then the easy way to get a hold of me is just cameron c-a-m-e-r-o-n at ford f-o-r-d k number nine com perfect so it's not talking sense because i went to look for your podcast before and i looked up talking sense that's not it it's canine talking sense yep canines talking sense and it's spelled sense like smell yeah there's another one called talking sense that's not yours it's perfumes yeah it's a a perfumery one yeah you guys should do a crossover i had the name before them i had the name before them and then i didn't air my podcast in time and they already launched with it so you you should do a crossover i like it yeah well and and the canines part actually helps it out anyway because then people know it's about dogs yeah so you know not Blessing perfume. in disguise. <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> not perfume. I did not know there's a perfume podcast, but mm. of course there is. Yeah. Of course there is. Of course. There's got to be. There's a podcast for almost everything now. Exactly. All right. That's it for another episode <laughs> of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. You can do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is via Patreon. For three bucks a month, you can get uh, access to an extra educational episode a month. And there's a few other tiers in there. And of course, at the end of the day, if you want to buy me and Glenn a whisper room, then you could just do that if you were. Absolutely. What would you call that person? A um, benevolent soul. A, yeah. A benevolent person who wanted to buy us a whisper room. You could go ahead and do that. Mm. Another way is you could jump onto Teespring and buy some of our cool ass merch and look cool as you listen to the show. How do you sir? Yeah, exactly. That's the new, new lineup. Mm. It, it's in the, in the Teespring store. And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is to shoot us an email and become one of the 351 unread emails in our <laughs> <inbox>. <laughs> Just go to the canine paradigm discussion group on Facebook. Yeah. That's the best place. Put it in the group. But that's it. Glenn, music please, sir. We're making camera listen to our music. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome.